This season of Hello Nature is brought to you by the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness, the ultimate expression of the legendary capability of the Outback line. In addition to its 9.5 inches of ground clearance, the Outback Wilderness is loaded with off-road ready upgrades to take you further than ever before. Adventure elevated with the Subaru Outback Wilderness. Hi, it's Misha Youssef. This is Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios and Subaru. Okay, so we've talked a lot about what it means to share history that centers BIPOC people, history that already exists. Stories like Stephen Bishop and Matt Bransford from Mammoth Cave National Park, like Major Taylor, the iconic cyclist, stories of the Black residents of Baldwin Hills, the Ojibwe, the Diné, the Sioux. I mean, it's one thing to highlight that kind of history. History that has been obscured, that has been erased or ignored. But let's remember, we're also making history right now. Our current moment is history in the making. And some of us will get to tell that story. Some of us will even get to be in it. We might even be in textbooks that our future children and children's children read. Although, let's be real, they won't be textbooks. They'll be like little clouds that directly download into our kids' brains. Anyway, my point is, how do we write the new pages of history so that they represent us? All of us, especially BIPOC communities. How do we write new history so that a few faces don't become token representatives? How do we give ownership to people to tell their own stories? To write history themselves? That's what we're exploring in this episode. And that's why we're in Boston, the birthplace of the American Revolution, one of the oldest cities in America. It was named Boston and incorporated by Puritan English settlers in 1630. But before that, the Massachusetts, Pawtucket, and their neighbors, the Wampanoag and Nipmuc peoples, stewarded this land for hundreds of generations. I wanted to come to Boston because it's such an integral part of American history. And it's the site of the oldest annual marathon in the whole world. As a runner... I wanted to see what all the hype was about. And, 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 Stephanie, our senior producer, went to college in Boston. So my first Marathon Monday, I was a freshman in college. My roommate asked me to go watch with her. And my dorm was only a 15-minute walk from the finish line. But I didn't really understand what was so interesting about watching a bunch of jocks run around. We had the day off from classes. Everyone would be day drinking. And it'd be crowded. I hate crowds. Plus, I had to work on a group project that day anyways, so I kind of had the perfect excuse. When my roommate got back to the dorm, she was panicking. The attack appears time for maximum impact. A lot of people down. You see the commotion right there in Boston today. It was honestly scary. The city went into lockdown until they caught the bombers. No one wanted to be alone, so 
Basically, everyone camped out in the dining hall. We ate lots of gooey dining hall cookies, watched the news obsessively, and waited for the lockdown to be over. A couple of days later, Boston Strong signs started popping up everywhere. All anyone would talk about was the bombing, which made sense. And Bostonians really did rally together. But sometimes it got dark. Sort of like after 9-11, people seemed to blame every brown person who dared walk down the street. So it was a weird time to be in the city, to be new to a city. And everyone kept talking about how sacred the marathon was. But no one was really being that specific about why. I honestly didn't understand why the marathon itself was such a big deal. So I wondered what the story of it was. It had to be more than the bombing. It had to be a story that transcended the tragedy. I went to the marathon the next year. I had an internship at a magazine, and my boss told me, go to the finish line and interview people. No further instructions. I was honestly a little nervous. And the city seemed cautiously excited. But when I was standing there in the crowd, I felt it. I felt the energy. People were coming together from across the world to witness this day. And for a moment, the city that had been so focused on this terrible thing returned to itself. I'm not going to lie, the citywide day drinking probably helped. I watched the marathon transcend the tragedy, and it was magic. But I still couldn't place where this magic was coming from. What was I missing? So I spoke to someone who would know. The Boston Marathon now reflects the changes of Boston, of Massachusetts, the U.S., and and the whole world. My name is Tom Dudarian. I wrote a large history of the Boston Marathon, 800-odd pages. I produced a film on the Boston Marathon history, and I've run it many times. I've done a lot of things because I'm old. So Tom's life basically revolves around the marathon. Yes, that is definitely fair. In a way, he was destined for it. Did you like running as a kid? Well, yes, it was an obvious way to get from one place to another. Why would I ever walk? Oh, my goodness. Yes, everyone out there, how dare you walk? Like, why? What are you even thinking? Do you not know you can run? Of course. That's the most Bostonian response ever efficiency. So you talk to Tom because he's like the Boston Marathon historian, right? Take me back to the beginning. How did the marathon start? So it all started in 1897. Some Bostonians, members of the Boston Athletic Association, had come back from the first Olympics. Now, the first Olympics were in in Athens in 1896. And at those Olympics was a a novel race, the marathon, that commemorated the mythic run of Pheidippides, the Greek soldier who supposedly fought in the, the Battle of Marathon and then ran to Athens, announced, rejoice, we conquer, and dropped dead. Now, that didn't really happen, but that was the essential myth of that time, that young men would sacrifice for God and country, they would endure, they would be tough, and ultimately they may well die for their country. 
that's where the Boston Marathon came from. So these Bostonians are like, whoa, these Greeks are intense. Not only do they have this wild history of dying for their countries, they're like celebrating that by doing a really hard thing. And what's funny is that at the time, doctors actually thought it was terrible for your heart to run that long. Like, you might actually die. Anyways, Boston is kind of similar to Athens. They are the birthplace of the American Revolution. Dying for your country is very much their jam. And so are hard things that might kill you. Which, of course, the Bostonians, in their great hubris, uh, thought of as the Athens of the West. Interesting. By the way, at the time, the Boston Athletic Association was full of them. Rich, influential, white men. The movers and shakers of Boston. All right, so they decide to put on a marathon, the first one in America. How does someone even do that? Like, start a whole marathon? Well, they have to design the course. And these guys, as you might have guessed, are a little obsessed with Greece. We're going to make a course that's like the original marathon course. Like the Greek marathon from the plains of Athens that went over hills. So they plan out the course, which goes from the suburbs of Boston into the city. And the first year, only 15 runners sign up. What? 15 runners? That's like an elementary school fun run. I know it's weird, but it's still a pretty big deal. The first Boston Marathon was front-page news in all the Boston newspapers, even though there were only 15 runners in it. And spectators would be placing their bets on the marathon. So the marathon was a big spectator event because it was a big betting event. Of course. Classic. People love gambling. What happens after that first year? So year after year, people come back to watch, and it becomes a tradition. Every year, they would go to, you know, over to Uncle Johnny's house and sit on the porch and watch the marathon go by. They would hand out water to the runners. Then they would wait for uh, old Clarence DeMar to come by. DeMar won the marathon seven times. And then in other years, it was old Johnny Kelly coming by who had won the race twice. And it's kind of crazy because in over 100 years, the route only changes slightly. What do you mean? So little things would change the route. There's this one really funny story. Sometime in the 50s, it seemed that these guys were running these fantastically fast times. And no one could understand why, why that was. It was the same start, the same finish. Why are they running faster? And they measured the course and they found that it was far shorter, several minutes shorter. Well, what had happened is that the municipalities along the way, the public works departments of the various towns, had straightened the roads. Curves were eliminated, but nobody told the Boston Marathon that they did that. Okay, so the shape of the marathon changes only a teeny tiny bit. But what about the people running it? That's actually where we see the biggest changes over time. Do you remember your first Boston Marathon that you ran? Oh, vividly. I was in high school. I had just turned 18. It was 1967. It was cold and it was raining and I was totally miserable. And I never made it to the finish that, that first year. This was the year, unknown to me at the, at the time, that uh, Catherine Switzer entered the race with an official number, which the officials didn't think she should have. I'm Catherine Switzer. 
I am an author and an athlete and an activist, but everybody knows me as the first woman to officially register and run the Boston Marathon way back in 1967. Way to bury the lead, Stephanie. What's the story behind Catherine? She just enters the marathon without permission? So Catherine starts running at a time when women aren't really supposed to. Some people actually thought that excessive exercise could make your uterus fall out. What? Oh, yeah. And others worried you'd grow chest hair and your legs would get too bulky. But for Catherine, she just wasn't that interested. I was 12 years old, and I really wanted to be a cheerleader. I wanted to be pretty and popular and date the captain of the football team like anybody else. But Catherine's dad was like, nope, not my kid. She's not just going to be someone's girlfriend on the sidelines. He said, you don't want to do that. He said, cheerleaders cheer for other people. He said, you want people to cheer for you. And the game is on the field not on the sidelines, and life is to participate, not to spectate. So you should get out and run a mile a day and make your field hockey team. And I went out and I started running a mile every day because I wanted to make this field hockey team very badly, and I'd never played a sport before in my life. And um, all through Washington, D.C., sweltering, hot, sticky summer, I did this mile a day. I'm so impressed. I feel like weather is literally one of the biggest obstacles to a regular running practice. I remember trying to run in the winter in Chicago and New York, and dude, it was brutal. So anyway, does Catherine make the field hockey team? Of course. As my dad said, I was one of the best players. And the reason was, is I never got tired and nobody could catch me because I could run so well. The thing she ends up liking the most about field hockey is the running part. So she continues to be a big athlete throughout high school. But then she goes to college at Syracuse University. And let's not forget that this is the 60s. There are barely any women's sports teams. But Catherine really wants to keep running. I was running on the men's cross-country team, not officially, but I was training with them. But it was little Arnie Briggs, who was the kindest man in the whole world, was the university mailman. And he sort of took me under his wing. He was also an ex-marathon runner, and he had trained with the men's cross-country team every day after his work. You know, he could see that I was a little shy and also um, very nervous about my capability. And he helped me run every day. And when I met him, he was 50 and I was 19. So he was the guy who took me from three miles to five miles to 10 miles and ultimately to the marathon. They practiced together almost every day, sometimes after work or class. One night we were out running and he was telling me another Boston Marathon story. And I was so tired. It was just before exams and I said, oh, let's just quit talking about the darn marathon and run it. And he said, don't be ridiculous. He said, a woman can't run the Boston Marathon. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, women are too weak and too fragile. Arnie said that? I liked Arnie. I know. Don't worry, though. You'll like him again in a sec. Well, that really lit my fire. And I thought, nobody's going to tell me I can't (laughs) run 26 miles. And then I reminded him that Uh, Throughout history, other women had run the marathon distance, but they just didn't receive any credit for it, including a woman who actually ran the Boston Marathon in 1966. Bobby Gibb was truly a remarkable figure. Her intention was not to be an iconoclast, was not to change the world. Tom, again. Not until she was rejected, until the marathon official says, no, no, women, women can't run the marathon. They're, They're not physically capable of doing that. She knew she was fully capable of doing it. And she said, well, I'm going to go there. I'm going to jump in and I'm going to prove to them that I can do that and that a woman can do that. She made that difference. 
she didn't wear a bib number, but she jumped out of the bushes, ran the race, and it was highly publicized. So Catherine has a role model, someone who looks like her who's done this before. That's a good first step. And the second step is to wear Arnie down. So finally he said, I'll tell you what, if you run the distance in practice, I will take you to Boston. Wow, you know, I'm a real reward freak. So I said, okay, you're on. And we began training together more and more and more and more. I got very serious about it. The day came when we were going to run our 26 miles, 385 yards. When we finished, he said, oh my gosh, I just can't believe how good you look. And I said, you know, I feel awfully good. I thought I'd be a lot more tired and I don't think this is long enough. And he said, what do you mean? I said, why don't we go do another five miles? He said, can you do another five? And I said, sure, can't you? And he goes, oh, okay, yeah, all right. And we finished the run and I threw my arms around him. I said, we did it, we're going to Boston. And he passed out. (laughs) And when he came to, he said, Women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. See, I told you Arnie would come through. So anyways, she registers herself for the race. And this is an important part. She doesn't sign her name Catherine. She signs it as K.V. Switzer. Is she going to try to get around the rules? Actually, no. Turns out her birth certificate has a typo. Her dad forgot the E in Catherine. So she's already in the habit of signing forms with her initials instead. All I wanted to do was run. I mean, I wasn't there to make a statement. I'll tell you the truth. I really just wanted to do it. The Boston Marathon was just such a goal. She actually looks at the rule book before she signs up, and she sees nothing about gender. A loophole. Kinda. She drives down to the marathon with Arnie and her boyfriend at the time, who's this big, burly football player. She is a football player's girlfriend. She got to be the star and the girlfriend. Women can have it all, Catherine's dad. He's also planning on running the race. So it's 1967, the same year as Tom's first marathon. And if you remember, it is cold. Right before the race, we were all very disappointed because it was coming down with freezing, sleeting rain and snow so that when you stood there, it would pile up on your shoulders, the snow, and soak through your clothes. It was really, really miserable. As a a runner, the race is constantly changing because the biggest factor is not the course, because that's fixed. The weather can be drastically different. It can be hot, um, it can be cold, it can be windy, it can be rainy. You can be running with frozen hands. Or it can be so hot that you're just looking for water to dump on your head. Spring in Boston, huh? I was disappointed because I had on a really nice little shorts and top that I wanted to show off. And um, instead, I had to wear my baggy sweatsuit and gloves. But all around me, despite all these baggy clothes and everybody looking alike and hiding under plastic bags and garbage bags and things, um, the men knew I was a woman and they all came up to me and said, I'm so glad you're here. I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. Are you going all the way? We're with you all the way. It was really, really nice. Aw, that's so sweet. I know. Okay, so they all huddle at the starting line. And boom, boom, the gun goes off and down the street we went. And I was really relieved and happy. You're always happy at the start of the race because you're finally on your way. And you can start taking a deep breath and warming up again and getting into your stride. And as we went through the little town of Hopkinton, 
beep, 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 the press truck came by us. The world's most famous foot race even attracts a leggy lady, Kay Switzer of Syracuse. Following the press truck was a bus, and the bus was an official's truck. And one of the guys on this bus was Jock Semple, the co-race director. And the officials and the um, journalists in particular were teasing him, saying, Hey, Jocko, there's a girl in your race. She's wearing bib numbers. He was just so beside himself that he ran up to the driver, had the driver stop the bus and ran off the bus and chased me down the street. I didn't know this was happening. And then at the last minute, I heard his shoes scuffling on the pavement. It's sort of like you hear the dog before the dog bites. And I turned and I was looking into the fiercest face of any guy I'd ever seen. It was Jock Semple screaming at me, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers, ripping at my bib, trying to get it off of me. And I got away from him, but he had me by the sweatshirt, was pulling me back and saying, get out of my race and give me those numbers. And Arnie tried to get him away from me. Leave her alone, leave her alone, he was screaming. And all of a sudden, that's when my boyfriend, the 235-pound ex-All-America football player, threw the shoulder charge into the official and sent him flying right through the air. I said, oh, my God, we've killed him. This was a really bad scene. Arnie was very, very angry as well. So he said, run like hell. <laughs> we just went like the blazes down the street, flying past the press truck, who then accelerated and went after us and were shouting, what are you trying to prove? When are you going to quit? Are you a suffragette? Are you a crusader? You know, I was wiping the tears away. I was so scared. I was so um, frightened. I was really embarrassed. You know, like, have I screwed up this big race somehow? Then Arnie looked at me with the expression was, you know, what do you want to do? I mean, do you want to quit? And I said, Arnie, I'm going to finish this race on my hands and my knees, no matter what. She can't stop thinking about what happened at the second mile. And this is the 60s. It's not like she can plug in her headphones and distract herself with music. What is next in a marathon is the moment that's called hitting the wall. Hitting the wall is when you run out of glycogen and all your energy and all your emotions really have flown out of your body. And it usually occurs at about mile 22. And so when this moment happened, which I was expecting naturally, but anyway... I suddenly realized that I had wasted a lot of energy murdering Chalk Semple in my mind. If you're going to be an agent for social change, you better have a plan. And I didn't know what the plan was, but I decided the best thing to do was to become a better athlete and then work to change the system. And she realizes that Jock, the race director guy who assaulted her, is just a part of that system. In a way, it wasn't even his fault. He reacted the way you would react if that was your limit of knowledge. I mean, it was up to me to change that and to somehow show him a different way. Then I got angry at women. And I said, why aren't the women here? Why am I the only one trying to change the system? Why does it have to be me? I just wanted to run. They're not here because they're afraid. And I thought, okay, okay, let's back up. You've got to really change things for them, too. So this is what starts to give Catherine a second wind. I just felt relieved and then also kind of overwhelmed by the thought of I have a lot of work ahead of me because I knew I was going to be pilloried for doing this. And this 
gets her all the way to the finish line, which is when the real work begins. After the race, it was a huge amount of publicity, and it was very polarizing. And the publicity was also divided into sort of a comic kind of coverage of girl being saved by burly boyfriend to other people saying she shouldn't have been there, journalists, to others who are a little more thoughtful about what does this mean in the bigger picture. But Catherine made a promise to herself during the race. So she starts to talk to the press. She's like, maybe if I keep talking, that'll change things. That woman will be officially allowed to join the marathon. So she proved that a woman can do it. Isn't that enough to convince the directors to add them to the race? You'd think so. But no, it took five years to make it official. It was a wonderful moment in 1972 when eight of us were there together. Absolutely, we knew we were stepping into history. And we had this unspoken agreement that we were going to finish no matter what. And it turned out to be an exceedingly hot day. And we all had a lot of problems, but we all finished. And it was a triumph for us. and It was a triumph for history. It took five years because people need to change. And it is very, very hard to get the word out that is happening. But more and more women were running and they were coming to us women and saying, if you show up, I'll show up. They were afraid to step out the door, afraid to take the first step. We actually made history that day. Wow, that's so incredible. I know, it really is. And throughout the years, more people like Catherine have broken barriers. People like Bob Hall. A change came about in the 70s when Bob Hall, who had had polio, sometimes used a wheelchair, talked to the manager and asked, well, if I can break three hours in my wheelchair, would you give me an official number? And he did. And that's what started the wheelchair division of the Boston Marathon. Then there was... Ibrahim Hussein, in 88, came to Boston from Kenya and won the Boston Marathon. The first Kenyan and African to win the Boston Marathon. And you could say that he broke a barrier. And this year, at the Boston Marathon, a group of people made history again. There's something so unique about crossing a finish line, knowing that you are proudly doing it as your whole self, and that crossing that finish line opens up new worlds for other trans and non-binary people. After the break, we meet Cal Calamia, one of the first runners to compete in the Boston Marathon's new non-binary division. Hey, and wow, I'm in awe that running the Boston Marathon can be such a catalyst and force for positive change. There's nothing like race day energy especially out here in Boston. So much cheering, so much support for the runners. I'm so glad I got to celebrate Cal and Jake's race day this year. The race takes place in and throughout Boston's breathtaking nature, including some of the city's most scenic surrounding parks and waterways, plus wildlife, of course. That's where Subaru comes in. Subaru is the largest corporate supporter of the National Park Foundation and has provided over $70 million to organizations working to preserve our parks. That's enough to help protect 84 million acres of land. If you want to learn more about how Subaru supports the parks, check out Subaru.com environment. 
Cal Calamia is a non-binary runner who has pushed for a non-binary division of runners in the Boston Marathon. I use they or he pronouns, and I am a runner, an educator, and an inclusivity activist. Nature is second nature to Cal. I used to go to this family camp when I was a really little kid with like my grandma and my siblings. And that is a really early memory I have of just being outside and being so excited to just be in nature, to walk around, hike around, swim, play games, and just be around other people. I just remember the camp experience making me feel small, but in a way that I liked. I liked that the water, you know, didn't end as far as I could see. I liked that the trees made me feel tiny. And I think it was a very early reminder of the power and the beauty of the natural world that we get the privilege to live in. So I really associate nature with both the individual piece of having that solitude and that connection with self, but also I really love having community experiences in nature. That's also really important to me. But they didn't use running as a way to experience nature until like middle school. I had been playing soccer since kindergarten, so pretty much my entire life. And if you've ever played soccer, you can't really play it without running. I loved running, but I loved it through soccer. But then Cal realizes running can be its own thing. And I started running as an organized sport in middle school. And I found a way to love it by itself, by having the opportunity to do cross country. There's something really magical for me about the power of endurance, both in a physical sense, but also in a mental and emotional sense. So I think that is what really clicked for me. I love like just prevailing over time. I think endurance is a really powerful thing and I think it's really important to build like self-esteem even and just to understand what one is capable of, especially with narratives surrounding trans folks and you know other marginalized folks. It's important for us to feel like there are things that we're really good at and I think that helps us stay attuned to the fact that the dialogue around you know who we are, what we deserve, what we don't we know what we're capable of and that we're strong and that we're able to endure. Running teaches Cal a very important lesson about doing hard things. And they learn this lesson at a race. Kind of the scariest place to learn a brand new life lesson. The competition is high. Emotions are high. I just remember one of the conference courses in middle school cross country and it was just incredibly hilly. The hills are high. Everything is high. So I remember walking the course and being like, oh, wait, there's just no way. There's just absolutely no way that I'm actually going to run this entire thing. But then they're like, okay, what if I don't have to think about running the whole thing right now? What if I just think about running the first five minutes? And then the first hill? And then the next one? And... You know, that is when I started to learn the skill of breaking it down in smaller chunks in my mind. And doing that, I was able to just continue to run. And that in itself felt so like I had really, really done something. Because looking at that hill, I was just like, there's just no way I'm going to do this. And after that moment, one hill becomes one whole race. The chunks get bigger and bigger. The more Cal breaks them down and practices doing hard things. The distances get greater and greater. Cal feels like they're capable of more and more. 
Do you um, remember when you were like, okay, I can actually run the whole marathon? I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to do this. <laughs> I mean, truly, I did not know that I could do it until I did it. I remember something that. I will always, always remember, and it is that when I was in the porta potty line right before my first ever marathon, there was this lady who came up to me and asked me, "Is this your first marathon?" And I was like, "Yes." Like, how can you tell? Um, and she just told me, "Oh, you've already done all the work. Now it's just time to go have fun and enjoy it." And that allowed me to just release all the expectations I had and. Just have so much fun, and in having so much fun, that is what carried me through to the finish line. So I just, I always remember that with marathoning, you do put in months and months and months of training, and the marathon itself, while there can be a lot of pressure around it, that's the fun part. And that first marathon was just that—the first marathon. I haven't even run a single one, so just the idea blows my mind. It's getting to the point where I'm like, how many marathons have I run? And like a lot of runners, one of Cal's dreams was to run the Boston Marathon. This was my first time running Boston, but it wasn't supposed to be. It was so long awaited too, because I have been slated to run that race for years. Cal was supposed to run the marathon in 2020. I know. Guess what? No one was doing anything in 2020. When it got rescheduled, I was just weeks away. And then the following year, Cal decides this is the year. I'm doing it this year. And I tore my ACL when I was playing soccer. I was so devastated. The only thing I was thinking about when I fell to the ground was like, "No, Boston." Cal goes into rehab for their ACL, and they decide to sign up for a race to make their comeback official. So I started running again. After my ACL tear in maybe April, they sign up for Beta Breakers in San Francisco, and at Beta Breakers, the race doesn't give out proper awards for non-binary runners at the time, so they push back and they win. The race officials decide to give medals to the non-binary category, and this gets Cal really fired up. They want to advocate for non-binary runners at races, not just at Beta Breakers. But other races too, bigger ones. And one of those races was the Boston Marathon. You know, some races have been receptive to adding the category, or you know, doing right by the category. And maybe someday Boston will be someone I can talk to. Cal thought Boston was a long shot for adding a non-binary category. So right in about June or July of 2022, when I reached out to them, I just said, "Hey, I notice you don't have this." They had also qualified under the men's times and the women's times, so I was saying, you know, here I am. I've qualified for this race in every way, fair or square. How can I run it? Because I'm not running under a category that is not true to me. Then again, thinking about how many other people are also having this dilemma. How many other non-binary runners want to access Boston and feel like they can't? And when I reached out to them, they were like, "Yeah, we're interested in talking to you. Let's open up the conversation." And That's what we did. We just talked, and we had so many phone calls, so many Zoom calls, lots of emails back and forth, just kind of troubleshooting. How could this look? What should these qualifying standards actually look like? 
And we just talked through it all, step by step by step. And then the day comes for them to announce it. Cal's excited and nervous. How will people receive the news? Who's going to sign up? 27 people ended up registering under that category, all from a variety of different locations and demographics and experiences with gender. And it was incredible to just know that we were really showing up in the category as well, especially at a highly competitive marathon, which has competitive qualifying standards. But, 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 it's not all a piece of cake. It's kind of like running a marathon itself. There are hills. When you were going through this whole process, were there any obstacles that you encountered in trying to establish the category? Well, it depends. Race by race, it's different. Some races are like, oh, yep, let's just do it. No problem. Added it. No worries. You know, awards are there and we're great. And other folks just have responded with all sorts of misinformation about why this category doesn't make sense. And many of them have used Boston as a reference point and said, well, you know, if we're saying non-binary runners can run in our race, then how are they going to qualify for Boston? Because Boston only offers these two categories and that's not really going to work. So that is why Boston being receptive and making those changes is so important because pretty much every road race, you know, every marathon in the world arguably is at least considering what Boston is doing. Boston in particular, I think they were certainly open to adding the category and they were really receptive and they did an excellent job listening and prioritizing trans and non-binary runners experiences. And yet, you know, we're still working in a system that is imperfect in a lot of ways. The thing is, it's not just about adding a category. Even the more nuanced conversations around people saying, okay, well, great, we have this non-binary category, then let's just put all the trans people in there so we can just eliminate the problem of trans athletes in sports. And no, because not every trans runner identifies as non-binary and wants to run in a non-binary category. Even some of the most educated and empathetic people sometimes want a quick fix. Okay, we made a category. Let's throw every marginalized person in there and check the box. We did it. Done. We're inclusive now. But it's not that simple. I don't even know what percent of Americans believe that non-binary is a legitimate identity. I do not know what percent of Americans support equity for trans people. When we're dealing with that low-level acceptance to have high-level conversations about, okay, this category is really important, and also there is nuance, and, you know, this isn't the catch-all for trans athletes. And part of this goes back to something we talked about in the Atlanta episode. Who gets to sit at the table and be a part of the conversation? It's really tricky because some people are ready for that conversation, but, you know, who's actually dominating the conversation about trans athletes in sports right now is the general public for some reason. Like people who aren't trans, people who aren't even necessarily athletes that are just looking at ways to legislate against trans bodies in sports. Are we actually including the people we're talking about? Or are we making decisions for people without them? It's really challenging to to address all of the issues that need to be addressed in the scope of 
this debate by just adding this category. And yet I also think it's really valuable. And if nothing else, even if people are angry, people are saying the word non-binary and they're forced to confront that there are people attached to that word. Why do you think that this whole struggle and Boston Marathon actually creating this category was important in this political moment? Shifting the narrative away from like, protect women's sports. So like, look at the success and beauty and vibrance of people that are running this marathon as our true selves. There are so few opportunities right now where we get to really shed light on the joy and have at least a neutral, if not a positive conversation about who trans and non-binary people are and what we're doing. Something that's really important as well is that this whole conversation while it's being housed and running it's not really about running right it's about the fact that trans and non-binary people do exist and we want to do the same things that other people want to do without it being a red-hot debate about whether or not we can be there who we're taking something away from who we pee next to on one hand i feel grateful to be able to do this work and to be able to be a part of this conversation and on another hand I'm tired. Like, you know, it's enough, you know, running in itself is exhausting and it's it's also rejuvenating, but it's a lot. Like, you know, I'm putting in a lot of miles on my body and then, you know, to know that half of what I need to do in my life is try to negate what people are saying about whether or not I can do what I'm doing. It feels like this looming weight to just know that everything that I do and that people like me do is called into question by people who actually have nothing to do with anything. It's frustrating to constantly have to lead with what others think defines you. It's hard to tell the story that's expected of you instead of your own story, the one that's true to you. Okay, so the morning of the race arrives. It's 5 a.m. Cal gets up puts on their racing clothes, laces up their shoes. In the meantime, Stephanie and I head to the marathon to catch Cal. We should head that way because that's where the noise is coming from. Yes, I think it's like the first people, like the elite marathoners, are starting to do their crossing. While we're chatting with the people on the sidelines, Cal's getting closer to running. Cal takes the bus to the start line. When I was going to get on the bus, I ran into another non-binary runner that I had met at a shakeout run the day before. It was such a good experience because we just happened to bump into each other and we got to share, you know, the bus ride together. We were just able to spend that time like in community with each other. Yeah, it was one of those moments where sometimes in the madness of all of these conversations, what is at the heart of it can get lost. And I think that was an exact example of what is at the heart of it is the ability for trans and non-binary people to be able to find each other and to be able to see each other represented in the things that we're doing. Cal has this big purpose in their heart. This race is about so much more than running. But let's be real. It's also about running. And the running part is just about to start. It was so crowded and it was wet. <laughs> so, you know, the rain was kind of like 
drizzling, misting at the start. It was chilly. You know, we get into our literal corrals and it's like we're kind of like animals, like, you know, being corralled around and they're kind of yelling at us like, move up, move up. And we're trying to move up, but there's no room to move forward. And people are like shedding their last layer before starting the run, which is really exciting. Cal puts in their headphones and starts grooving. One foot in front of the other. Chunks, remember? Maybe one minute into my run, my music just totally cut out. And I couldn't salvage it for the entire duration of the marathon, which was so tragic. But it provided a unique opportunity for me to be so, so present with my environment and even down to just like the funny little things that spectators were saying on the side that I could actually hear. Like, I couldn't even run this fast for half a mile, like on the side of the road. It was funny. I felt like so connected to the space. The sound of feet stampeding was so powerful, just like all of the feet running. It was so special to just like experience each new place because you really are running through a bunch of different towns. I'm thinking about how green things looked, you know, especially with the rain coming down and the time of year, just, it was so beautiful, the trees, but also, you know, part of what felt like the landscape of Boston was just the people, really. So many people from so many different communities that were there, that live in Boston, that flew in from all over the world, just having that experience of seeing, you know, groups of people together and seeing people get excited to see their people running. And they're thinking about how cool it is that they didn't get to run the race when they were supposed to. I was registered initially under the female category, and that's what I had qualified under. So even though I had to wait, it really paid off to have the experience of being able to run in the non-binary category and being able to meet other non-binary runners and being able to be a part of this historic year in Boston. Just then, they enter. The Wellesley Scream Tunnel. From the beginning, Wellesley students go out to the road and watch the race go by. And they would cheer vigorously. Tom Derdarian is the historian from earlier. Wellesley, by the way, is a historically women's college. It was incredible. And I've heard people talking about that, you know, for as long as I've heard people talking about Boston. It was so loud. Like, it was truly beyond anything I could have imagined. You know, the few times that I saw pride flags or non-binary runners signs, like those were huge moments for me where I just felt so loved. So Cal gets through the scream tunnel and they set their sights on the next big milestone. Boston, again, it's so famous. So many people talk about different parts of the course. And I had in my mind, there are these Newton Hills. They're really challenging, especially Heartbreak Hill at the very end. And it's going to hurt. It was called Heartbreak Hill by uh, Boston Globe reporter Jerry Nason. There's actually a really cool history behind the name. It goes back all the way to 1936. Johnny Kelly wanted to win the Boston Marathon. And Tarzan Brown had taken a lead early, and Johnny Kelly caught him on what became known as Heartbreak Hill. And he was going to pass Tarzan Brown. By the way, Tarzan Brown was an indigenous runner. Anyways, He was going to just pat him on the back, go on and say, nice try, now I'll take over and go on to win the race. But it didn't work that way. 
Tarzan Brown said, no, you're not going to win. I'm going to win. And Tarzan Brown took off and won the race. And that was the place that Jerry Nason, the reporter, said broke Johnny Kelly's heart. Thus, the hill became named Heartbreak Hill. Since that moment, a lot of runners have been scared of Heartbreak Hill. And Cal is no different. There were some rolling hills, and at that point, the downhill, you know, felt painful because there was so much up and downhill that my legs were feeling really sore. So I think the last five miles, maybe particularly the last, like, two or three, were really challenging when the rain just absolutely broke the sky and it was pouring rain. And I just remember feeling like lifting my legs was so hard to do. It must have been so marginal, but that amount of extra water weight in my shoes, I was like, no, why does the universe hate me in this moment? And that's the moment when Cal starts thinking in chunks again. Little bits to conquer at a time. And not little chunks like whole marathons or races, but actual little ones. You know, I just kept telling myself one step at a time, just one foot in front of another foot. I was telling myself in my head, like, look at how far you've already come. Like, there is a non-binary category in this race, and there are 27 people running in it. This year, right now, like, this is happening. There's just a little way to go, just a little bit further, one step at a time. And luckily, that worked. And that's what carries Cal through the whole race. That's also around the time we spot them. Oh, there they are. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. They pass us. And Cal continues on, one step at a time, all the way to the finish line. Yeah. Wow. It was so surreal. There's something so unique about crossing a finish line, knowing that you are proudly doing it as your whole self, and that crossing that finish line opens up new worlds for other trans and non-binary people. I mean, again, there's just so little of that representation right now in the world. I feel like I'm not just crossing that for myself. It's like it's something I'm doing. I'm almost like feeling like I'm holding hands with people in my community. And so much of the personal goals and the personal motivation turns into something bigger and when I crossed the finish line I was immediately talking to reporters kind of to my surprise I don't know how they found me or what they wanted from me but people were like how are you feeling I'm like tired (laughs) like what the marathon ends and Cal starts to reflect what did the race really mean to them As a trans person, there's sometimes this, like, splitness of consciousness, which is around, like, okay, I lived the first, you know, 21 years of my life as a girl slash young woman in the Midwest, and then I moved to California kind of by myself. I didn't really have people here from my early life, and then I started this new life as, you know, a transmasculine, non-binary person with new people that I didn't know before, and so there are so many moments where those two things feel separate and one thread that feels like it weaves those two things together is running. Running has always been there with Cal. It's the thing that I've been doing my whole life in that 
really feels so centering to me because that dissonance between those two lives, those two places, those two identities can feel really challenging. And at the end of the day, I am a whole person. And you know, it's through running that Cal gets to transcend their identity, that they get to feel like all of themselves, that they feel whole. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be the first in something so badly. First Muslim, first woman, first Pakistani, first immigrant, first anything to do anything. But the burden of first is a lot to bear. You're thrust into this position where you're representing everyone in your community. But one person can't possibly do that. And sometimes when you're the first in something, that's all you become. Just a woman, just an immigrant, just a Muslim. And we're all so much more than just one thing. But we are in the middle of making history right now. New history. And we have the opportunity to tell stories differently. Sure, Cal was one of the first non-binary runners to compete in the Boston Marathon's non-binary division. Sure, they helped create a whole new category. Sure, those are huge accomplishments. By running the Boston Marathon, you have become part of that history. That long history that New York doesn't have, Chicago doesn't have. That's the appeal of Boston, to be part of that history. But what does it look like if our milestones are more nuanced? If becoming part of history is not just something that happens with one person? What if we don't assume that the moment one person from a marginalized group accomplishes something, we've achieved equality for that whole group? What does it look like to change those milestones to deeper ones? Inclusive milestones that are bigger than just one part of one person, one community, one race? I don't know what the answers to these questions are, but they do make me think about Cal's mantra for running, breaking it down into small little chunks, knowing that it's only one step, but it's also one step closer to building a more equitable country, a more equitable world. This episode is brought to you by Subaru. Did you know that since 2004, all Subaru vehicles have been manufactured at a zero landfill auto plant? That means that if you put a single bag of trash at your curb this week, you've sent more to a landfill than the Subaru of Indiana assembly plant will this entire year. I was able to visit Subaru's zero landfill auto plant earlier this year and was blown away by what I learned. Oh, wow. So exciting. The associates are the stars of this program. They created it and they continue to make it work every day. No manager, no vice president, no one can understand the process as well as that person who stands there on that line for eight hours a day 
238 days a year doing that job over and over. And once you tap into that energy, and once you ask the people, they'll tell you. They know. They know exactly what needs to be done. So they started coming up with ideas on in their own little portion of the line that they worked on every day, things that they thought could be improved for the environment. Thousands and thousands and thousands of ideas came in. And at the time we started, we were generating 459 pounds of waste for every vehicle we made. Now it's, it's around 210 pounds. There's a small amount that goes to a waste energy facility and the rest is recycled. Learn more about Subaru Zero Landfill Plant at Subaru.com slash environment. Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios is brought to you by Subaru. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. Stephanie Cohn is the senior producer. This episode was written by me and Stephanie Cohn. It was sound designed by Elizabeth Nakano. Jules Bradley and Valeria Alarcon provided additional production help throughout the season. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Carly Bond is the composer. Elizabeth Goodspeed is our art director and designer and did our artwork for the series. The illustrations on the artwork are by Joshua Ariza. From REI Co-op Studios, executive producers are Jenny Barber, Joe Crosby, and Hannah Boyd. 